I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Joel Parker. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 9th, 2016. Coming up, an interview with Dr. Miles Pufal, who studies the glucocorticoid receptor, a protein in cell membranes that is the target of drugs used to treat a variety of conditions from asthma to cancer. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. If you've hiked the Mesa Trail to the Mallory Cave in recent years, you know that the cave is closed due to a disease in the Townsend's big-eared bat colony up there. The disease is called White Nose Syndrome, WNS for short. WNS is an example of an emerging disease, a new sickness first described in wildlife that can spread to other animals and humans. WNS is caused by a fungal pathogen that kills bats by disrupting hibernation. It was introduced to North America from Europe in 2006 and has spread to 26 states, killing millions of bats. Yet several species, like their European counterparts, survive infection. An international team proposed a model involving hibernation, fungal growth rate, and local climate to explain how some bats are able to survive winter with infection, while others are not. They found a simple but nonlinear interaction between fungal growth and bat size. Small infected bats that hibernate in damp habitats are less likely to survive than larger bats that hibernate in dry habitats. These findings may help toward predicting the spread and selective toll of white nose syndrome on North American bats. The study was published last week in the journal Science Advances. And if you'd like to see some big pictures of local and exotic bats, check out the Henderson Museum on the CU campus just west of the UMC. On the second floor, they have an exhibit of banners featuring high-resolution images of selected species from the museum collection. The museum is open weekdays from 9 to 5. You will be assimilated. In what be, may be another step toward our cyborg future, medical researchers have created a new interface between the human brain and external machines. In this case, it would give people with spinal cord injuries new hope to walk again with the power of thought. The interface consists of a stent-based electrode called a stentrode about the size of a small paperclip, which is implanted within a blood vessel next to the brain. The stentrode records the type of neural activity that has been shown in preclinical trials to move limbs through an exoskeleton or to control bionic limbs. The results of a study of the device were published this week in the journal Nature Biotechnology. The researchers claim the device is capable of recording high-quality signals emitted from the brain's motor cortex without the need for open brain surgery. They plan to start the first inhuman trial at Australia's Royal Melbourne Hospital next year. Infant girls at risk for autism pay more attention to social cues in faces than infant boys, according to a Yale School of Medicine study. The first one known to prospectively examine sex-related social differences in at-risk infants. This difference in observational skills could help protect female siblings of children with autism from developing the disorder themselves. 
These high-risk siblings are about 15 to 20 times more likely to have autism than those without a history of autism in the family. Researchers measured social attention in 101 infants between the ages of 6 and 12 months who have older siblings with autism. Girls in this high-risk group displayed more attention to people and their faces than all other infants. This increased access to social experiences during a highly formative developmental period predicted fewer social impairments at two years of age. It is important to note, however, that this may not prevent autism in high-risk females, but could mitigate the severity of autism symptoms. These findings were published in the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry earlier this week. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days when the mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days when the mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Miles Pufal at the University of Iowa. Miles studies the glucocorticoid receptor, which we will call GR. GR binds to steroids like cortisol and then moves into the cell nucleus to activate certain genes. Because of this ability to turn on many genes, GR is the target of drugs used to treat a variety of conditions from asthma to cancer. This is Beth Bennett, and you are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today, we're talking to Dr. Miles Pufal at the University of Iowa. And Miles works with a really fascinating protein called the glucocorticoid receptor. That's a mouthful, so we'll call it GR most of the time. And he uses it to study a lot of different interesting things. So maybe we can start off, Miles, by you just telling us what that receptor is and kind of how it works. So uh, it is a mouthful. Uh, the glucocorticoid receptor, you can break down into its component parts, the first part of it being gluco. Uh, it was discovered as something that regulates glucose metabolism, uh, which is uh, obviously an essential function in almost every cell. Uh, and then uh, cortico uh, is, uh, means that the hormone that binds to this receptor comes from the adrenal cortex. And most people know the adrenal gland for responding to things like stress, uh, particularly adrenaline. And I think when you think about glucocorticoids, you can think about it as uh, your body trying to get itself back into homeostasis uh, under stress. So uh, if you think about glucocorticoids as a stress response, you won't go too far wrong in thinking about what they do. And so every cell in your body has this receptor so that every cell can respond to stress. Is that right? That's right, except for red red blood cells, uh, which is uh, the only reason they don't have it is they don't have a nucleus. Uh, and glucocorticoids work, uh, we think, exclusively by turning genes on and off. So you need a nucleus for that. So this is a really cool idea that something that's outside the cell, like cortisol, can attach to this receptor molecule and then, voila, turn on and off genes. Yeah, and uh, so it is amazing. So this, this, this protein that binds to it, most people think of receptors as something that hangs out on the surface of the cell, and touches everything in sight and decides if it's going to respond or not. Uh, this is essentially uh, a machine that is ready for a trigger to get working. So 
So it's sitting there in the cytoplasm of the cell, doing, as far as we know, nothing, uh, until cortisol diffuses through the membrane uh, and activates it. And once it activates, it all hell breaks loose, and uh, it turns genes on and off and uh, different ones depending on different tissues that it's in. And how does that work, that tissue specificity? Uh, that is uh, more than a million-dollar question. <laughs> so, uh, so, and I bet you're doing uh, some work on that, too. <laughs> we do. We do. Uh, so, uh, right. So, glucocorticoids, let me answer that this way first. So, glucocorticoids are used as drugs all the time. Uh, uh, they're the most commonly prescribed anti-inflammatory drug. And I think uh, people take anti-inflammatory drugs to combat uh, uh, various things, uh, more, more things than you would probably imagine, things like asthma, um, uh, response to injury, things like that, uh, rejection of tissue, uh, you take them to, to reduce inflammation for that reason. Um, and in general, uh, glucocorticoids are a wonderful drug if you take them short-term because they clear up a lot of problems. But if you take them long-term, uh, the things that they do really ravage the body, uh, and they do things in tissues that you don't like. They chew up your bones, they waste away your muscles, uh, they generate fat, uh, they over-mobilize glucose so that you can develop diabetes. And so uh, a lot of research right now is focused on uh, how is it that we can do the things that we want to do, reduce inflammation in a joint or specifically uh, in the site of an organ transplant or specifically in your lungs for inflammation, uh, for asthma, and yet not have it do those other functions. So uh, it truly is the, the multi-multi-million-dollar question of how can we make these work very locally uh, because we love what they do locally but not systemically. So throughout okay, the okay. And so I understand that specifically you are using a, a leukemia model, a childhood leukemia model, and since that's a blood cancer, then the drug would go all through the body in the blood. Is that right? And so it might have some of those problems you just mentioned? It absolutely does, right. So uh, when kids get treated, or adults too, glucocorticoids are used to treat uh, any what we call lymphoid malignancies. So that could be leukemias or lymphomas, um, uh, including multiple myeloma. Uh, and it uh, is a very effective drug in actually specifically killing off those cells, um, which is great, of course, if you're treating them for leukemia. Um, now, if you have leukemia or lymphoma, you clearly want to get rid of that problem before you worry about anything else. And so some of the side effects associated with it that I mentioned before, um, bone wasting, uh, muscle wasting, uh, are, are huge issues, particularly in adults for these. Um, but if it's a life or death decision, you go ahead anyway. Uh, and, and, and take the risk. Sure, yeah, with cancer, I can understand that. And it sounds like what the, the, the steroid drugs do via the glucocorticoid receptor in these lymphomas is really a, a wild thing. This, and this is one of my favorite words, that they turn on the apoptosis pathway? They, uh, they do, uh, right. So uh, I think the best understood mechanism, and so one thing that we worry about, okay, so uh, the research in my lab uh, is really focused on several things. One is a very basic science question of how does this glucocorticoid receptor work as a protein. The second is um, how is it working in these leukemia cells, and can we make it work better specifically in those leukemia cells? Uh, and as we've delved into the research on what we understand about how these glucocorticoids actually kill off these leukemia cells, um, 
does trigger these apoptotic pathways, and apoptosis, as uh, it sounds like your listeners probably know, uh, is uh, a programmed cell death. So this is a cell death that your cell has planned for. And when it receives a stimulus, it says, oh, now is the time to die. And it initiates this program to kill itself off. So for some reason, by encountering this hormone that is coursing through your body, these leukemia cells know that they should be dying. And when you give them a ton of this drug, they die very well. Uh, and that's a real mystery. Why would you want these lymphoid cells, these leukemia cells, or if they were in normal tissue, why would you want those to die uh, in response to a normal hormone? Uh, so that's one thing that, that, that we're working on very hard to try and understand uh, why, why you would want that uh, to be a, a normal part of your body's functioning. So normal blood cells don't respond in that way. They don't trigger their suicide pathway. Well, we think they do, oh. but it is not a strong response, okay? So uh, the, the levels of steroid that you have coursing through your body right now are, I think we could say, a 1,000 or, or more times less than you would get if you had uh, a dose that you would get in leukemia. Okay. Is that enough to kill some of those cells? It probably is, but those could be hard to detect. Um, right now, we model it as these glucocorticoids are one of many signals that tell your immune system to either uh, grow faster or die off. Uh, and your immune system is constantly trying to respond to threats. So as you uh, build it up and uh, if you make the right antibodies, then you keep those cells. If you don't, you want to get rid of them. Uh, and so there's a constant turnover of those. Okay. And so kids that are taking this drug then for leukemia, they would be on it for a limited amount of time and try to get rid of maybe half of those cancerous cells, and then would they go off and go back on? Ah, good question. So uh, they get uh, an initial course of uh, chemotherapy called induction therapy. The goal of in induction therapy, uh, which lasts for uh, a couple months, is to clear uh, out all of the leukemia cells that we can find. Um, and the goal at the end of that is to be able to essentially not be able to detect any leukemia left uh, remaining in the body, okay? Um, if there is remaining leukemia after that induction therapy, um, that is uh, a very poor prognostic factor. So uh, 80 to 90% of kids, if not more, uh, actually respond to this initial phase of chemotherapy by clearing the disease. Okay. Um, there's then uh, two other stages to the chemotherapy, uh, and glucocorticoids are included in, uh, or can be included in both of those as well, but not at as high a dose. Okay. And to our yeah. listeners, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett, and we are talking to Miles Pufal about his research with the glucocorticoid receptor. So stay tuned to find out more about this fascinating molecule. Okay, Miles, so I know that you use a gene editing technique called CRISPR, and we don't have to worry about what that acronym stands for, but how does that tie in to the biomedical research that you're doing on leukemia? Ah, okay. So uh, how it works on, uh, with leukemia right now, um, we don't have a specific plan for it for that. We uh, right now tie it into the basic functioning of this glucocorticoid receptor. So here's how we do that. Uh, and it will uh, at, some, at some point have an impact, but this is uh, two uh, uh, ends of my lab. One is very, very basic 
science, and the other is 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 trans, what we call translational for leukemia research. Okay. On the and basic end of it, we are very interested in how uh, when the glucocorticoid receptor encounters its hormone and it goes to the nucleus to turn genes on and off, how it figures out exactly where to go in the genome. Okay. So to turn genes on and off, uh, you need to stick uh, this protein um, somehow in proximity to it. Uh, to the gene that you want to turn on. So and let's, 20, and let's, 000, yeah, let's yeah. just remind people that our genome is really big. We have, I think you were just getting ready to say 20-some thousand genes in there. Yeah, so you have 20-some thousand genes embedded in your genome. The genome itself is uh, uh, what we would call uh, 3 billion base pairs long or 3 billion units long. The glucocorticoid receptor needs to find a stretch of about 20 of these base pairs to bind to within those three billion uh, to stick to uh, and then turn the right genes on and off. Wow, that's the so proverbial very, needle in the haystack. Very much so, very much so. Uh, so we're really curious about how it is that it can uh, find exactly the right place to bind. And that, that problem is sort of further complicated by the idea that uh, it actually doesn't bind to a single place. It binds to, by our measures and many others, 50,000 or so different places in the genome and it doesn't recognize exactly the same uh, base pairs, the same 20 uh, base pair sequence every time. It has variants that it can recognize as well. So what we try and do is to understand uh, how much variation it can tolerate and still find the right place in the genome. Okay. Okay. So I don't know if that, is, does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So it's looking okay. for specific switches, but there's a lot of very, it can find big switches and little switches and red switches and blue switches. You got it. And so in, the, in about, it, it, it's about 20 base pairs that this thing is long, and that can be uh, some combination of these four letters. Okay. So what we are using CRISPR for now, we have, we, we've now done a bunch of uh, work in a test tube and tried to correlate that with things that we find when we look at where it likes to bind when it's actually in cells. And we have some pretty good ideas about uh, what we think will happen uh, if we alter the sequence that we think it should be binding to. So what we use CRISPR for now uh, is to go in and make very specific changes in that targeting sequence that it binds to in the genome and see if we're right about them. We think two things will happen when we change that sequence. One is it may or may not bind as well as it used to. It may not find it as easily as it did before. Uh, another is that uh, finding it isn't enough. It needs to find it and stick there uh, probably for some amount of time. Uh, if you change the, uh, the duration of how long it sticks there, that can affect whether it turns the gene on and off or not. So what we do is we go in and edit those sites in some rational way and say, okay, we're going to change this to something that it doesn't bind as well or that it binds to with different what we call kinetics, on and off rates. Uh, and how does that change how it regulates the gene uh, that that is associated with? So to so clarify, that's what we use CRISPR for, yeah, yeah. Okay, just to clarify this for our listeners that aren't so familiar with molecular genetics, the mm -hmm. the DNA is made up of a sequence of four chemical letters A, C, G, and T for the most part, and they're like Miles said, there's three billion of them, and so the glucocorticoid receptor that's bound to cortisol is looking for a specific short stretch that I'm, I've been calling a switch that'll turn the gene off and on. And these switches are usually located right in front, like the front door of the gene. And so the 
by changing the switch a little bit, they can look at how the effects of that glucocorticoid receptor will be altered. Is that right? Yeah, like 95% right. The okay. one thing uh, that, that we use CRISPR for as well. So um, everything was exactly correct, except for that the place where it binds isn't necessarily right next to the gene. And this okay. is something that's been revealed uh, over the last uh, about half dozen years as people have begun to figure out where these things stick to DNA. As a matter of fact, only about 20% of the time does it bind near the gene that you think it's going to turn okay. on. Okay. We think, we think, and so we also use CRISPR uh, when we think, oh, this is the place that it sticks to delete that site and say, okay, if we delete that, does it no longer regulate the gene that we think it does? One of the great frustrations for us anyway, and I think probably for others, has been we thought that it was true, that the place that it bound that was closest to a gene would be the one that mattered. Uh, the, two or th the two or three that we tried, that was not the case. Oh, so we didn't find the right site. So again, it's this needle in a haystack where you not only need to find out where in the genome that it binds, but then you need to match that place where it binds with the gene that it regulates. Right. And that is that is um, not clear how to do exactly yet. Yeah, I can see that that would be complicated. So in yeah. doing yeah. all of this, uh, so you're using the CRISPR by by changing, uh, making small changes in the genome. You're trying to identify the binding sites, and have you found some that have significance in the activity of the receptor? We think so. Um, I can't say for sure, <laughs> and I'm not trying to be. I'm not trying to be cagey. We're still testing. Sure. So, yeah. Well, hopefully, we think so. hopefully you'll have funds to continue this for a while to get an answer to yeah, that question. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And and then if you do get. I won't say if, I'll say when you get results to that question, uh, how do you think you can apply those in a biomedical sense? Right. So, uh, good question. So, when you find a binding site for one of these, uh, for the glucocorticoid receptor, for instance, a glucocorticoid receptor is part of a family of proteins called transcription factors. These are the collection of proteins that can turn genes on and off. Okay. Uh, the glucocorticoid receptor binds to a particular sequence in that DNA. You can look in the proximity of that and find other sequences that other transcription factors like to bind to. And from that, you can begin to infer all of the things that the cell needs to turn that gene on or off. Now, if that's a really important gene, for instance, one of these apoptosis genes that you talked about before that actually kill the cell or don't, uh, you can begin to say, ah, okay, the, all of these things need to collaborate for that apoptosis gene to be turned on. Let's make sure all of those things are present, or let's see if we can hyperactivate those things to kill these cells off better. So you can do uh, applied things like that. So by understanding the, the um, uh, where it binds, you can begin to infer uh, how to manipulate the cell in a way to turn the gene on and off better. I see. So basically you could de make designer drugs that would target all of those necessary genes. That's right. That's right. Okay. Or individual genes, even. Uh, mm. uh, as it turns out, you know, there's a, uh, um, it, it, it used to be the idea that uh, you could, that each gene was regulated in a very um, general way. But what we're finding now is that each gene seems to have uh, its own requirements for getting turned on and off, which makes some sense. 
<laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. <the> yeah. <laughs> but well, makes makes stud, studying them and understanding the patterns of what gets regulated at the same time uh, challenging. Absolutely, and it's so cool to see this combination of basic and applied biology. And unfortunately, that's all we have time for this morning. But thank you so much, Miles. That's been fascinating. That was Dr. Miles Pufal from the University of Iowa. Miles spoke with us about his work in trying to understand what it is about the glucocorticoid receptor that makes it a useful target for anti-cancer drugs. In addition, he uses the receptor to try to unravel more basic biology, such as how genes are turned off and on. A really big question. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by me, Beth Bennett. Additional contributions by Joel Parker and Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from 21 Pilots. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Do you have questions or comments? Well, you can call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Beth Bennett.